be damn well hurts. Certainly it hurts. Well, what's the trick then? The trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. Oh, by the way, if Captain Gibbon should inquire for me, tell him I've come for a chat with the general. He's balmy. He's all right. I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information about the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. This week, we are continuing on with something a little bit different. We're wrapping up December with the second of our two-part episode that is covering David Lean's amazing 1962 epic, Lawrence of Arabia. Join us! So, why don't we just pick up where we left off last week? So, something you need to understand, right around the time that this film was starting to get put together, Lawrence, as a figure within popular culture, coming off of the 40s and the 50s, he was widely regarded. People loved to read about him, to learn about him. He died young, and what's more, in an accident. And that, of course, breeds a bunch of perfect ground for conspiracy theories. And all sorts of them abounded as to the, quote, real way that Lawrence met his untimely end. You know, murdered by government officials, silenced by old Arab enemies, all the sorts of stuff that newspapers loved to use to get readership. And so it would come really as no surprise that during this time period, many were really trying to tap into that cultural popularity and bring a big screen adaptation of Lawrence and the story of the Arab Revolt on to the big screen. So how did the film get started? Well, this was a story that had been in the works for a major film for quite some time. The rights ended up passing back and forth between parties since the early 40s when it came to using Lawrence's book, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. That is, until a little thing called World War II sort of interrupted the flow and delayed a lot of serious inquiries. At least, that lasted until the early 1950s. Right around the time that the British were attempting to helm their own version of telling Lawrence's story, director David Lean was actually tapped to direct that version for the Rank Organization. 
You may remember we discussed the rank organization back when we were covering Christopher Lee on our Tall, Dark, and Gruesome episode. If you haven't, go back and check it out. They're a rather fascinating group. But that project eventually stalled out and all of its funding fell through, which once again put the story of Lawrence in play for a number of aspiring artists. Enter producer Sam Spiegel, who actually had the forethought to go out and buy the rights to Lawrence's own book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and he had done so with the blessing at the time of Lawrence's surviving brother, Professor Arnold Lawrence. Now, if you haven't heard of Spiegel, he was an independent titan in the Hollywood movie industry. He had helped produce such minor films as The Prowler, African Queen, On the Waterfront, and, of course, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Oh, that's going to be a future episode for sure. Spiegel had the connections, the deep coffers of Columbia Pictures, and the drive to see an epic presentation brought to the big screen. He started by tapping again director David Lean to helm this project, noting that he was superb in handling Kwai a few years prior. Initially, they had gotten screenwriter Michael Wilson to come on board, and he himself had also worked on Bridge Over the River Kwai and had put together an actual nice screenplay for Lawrence of Arabia, but ultimately his work would have to be downplayed and then buried because he had been blacklisted in Hollywood by the House of Un-American Activities. Columbia was not going to officially use him, and while Lean had already had problems with the script, this forced Spiegel to still throw the young writer a bone and use some of his treatment. But ultimately, they would need another writer to come on board and start afresh with something they could actually use. Now, as they were putting this all together, Spiegel wanted a big star name, something he could really sell to both Columbia and the public, just to get things off the ground. So naturally, he picks the biggest star of the day. He goes with Marlon Brando. He wanted Brando to play T.E. Lawrence, and he pursued him hard, which caused a real bit of pushback with the British public. They didn't want to see an American playing the lead role in someone they considered a national hero. Still, Spiegel pressed on, and he tried to round out what he considered his ideal cast with a bunch of big names, and he could then lend his sort of production star power. In Spiegel's mind, Cary Grant was the perfect General Allenby with Jack Hawkins, who had already been on the aforementioned Bridge on the River Kwai, he would be Colonel Newcomb. And in a bit of casting that was really rather a head-scratcher, Spiegel wanted German actor Horst Buckles, initially slotted to play the role of Sharif Ali. Now, Horse Buckles in the day, I mean, he was in a lot of big movies. He was in The Magnificent Seven. He showed up a lot of places. He wasn't a bad actor. But that bit of stunt casting, could you just imagine doing that today? Hi, I'm whiter than Tom Petty. I'm up for the role of a Bedouin leader. What are you here to read for? Spiegel himself was rather infuriated that while he was attempting to put this Lawrence story together, that British playwright Terence Rattigan was at the same time adapting his 1960 play, Ross, 
and that took its title from the false identity that Lawrence himself had used when he re-enlisted in the RAF. It told the story of an older Lawrence who was looking back on his life and his adventures during his time with the Arab Revolt, with a strong focus being on the figure's latent homosexuality. Now, at the time, Spiegel was still putting the production and Lawrence all together. Alec Guinness was coming off having played that role of Lawrence in Ross on London's West End, and he was receiving really favorable reviews for it. While Spiegel was angry that another production was trying to tell the same story, he did what he would do best. He made a real show out of it, giving interviews to the press, pointing out that, yes, yes, that, that's all fine and good, but his and Lean's film, they were going to be using the Seven Pillars as its source material. You know, the, air quotes, official sanctioned story about Lawrence of Arabia. Not one of those other works, and he tried to milk the perceived controversy as fodder for the press, once again, put all eyes on them. Problems would begin to mount, though, for Spiegel, when in 1960, Brando dropped out of the project, citing, quote, other commitments, which would, in reality, include making the film The Fugitive Kind in 1960, and then using his own clout to direct himself in a peckinpah-written western, One-Eyed Jacks, essentially wiping out the slate of big American stars that were all attached to the project. In addition, while he did own the rights to the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, Spiegel actually hadn't found a writer yet to adapt the story, so that left him stuck. Eventually, a British playwright, Robert Bolt, who was known for his hit play, A Man of All Seasons, would be hired to adapt Lawrence's book, and he took his sweet time in doing it. They went through multiple drafts, and he got into heated arguments with both Spiegel and Lean over the framing of the story itself, and all of this added an additional 14 months onto the pre-production process of just getting things off the ground. Finally, he was able to deliver a usable script in late January of 1961. Back to casting, Lean was pushing hard to cast young Albert Finney in the role of Lawrence, and indeed, the actor was offered the part after having a very successful screen test. Ultimately, though, he left the project shortly after principal photography had started. Now, some had argued in the past that he was fired from the project. Others, like film historian Adrian Turner, had revised this statement to point out, at least in 2001, that no one is exactly sure what transpired, if Finney had left of his own volition, or if he had had a falling out that ended up leading to his termination from the project. What is known is that Finney did not want an extended contract with Columbia, and for either way, that was probably the decision that left to the break between the actor and the production itself. Now, Alec Guinness was considered to be the lead of Lawrence, which sort of made sense. He was just coming off of a very successful stage play, playing the character. But this film was covering the life of young Lawrence, and by that time, the 48-year-old actor was deemed too old to portray the then-young 28-year-old officer. Lean was interested in getting actor Montgomery Clift to come on board to play the role of Lawrence, but at this time, Clift was a former shell of himself. Post 
1956 car accident that required major reconstructive surgery to his face. The fallout of that was leaving Clift battling against a downward spiral of both depression that was ramped up by alcohol and drug abuse. Now, Spiegel had worked with Clift previously on a 1958 film, Suddenly Last Summer, and he really didn't want a repeat of those onset problems he had with Clift. So, Lean took his notes and took them seriously, so they decided to skip past him. Lean, though, was interested in another relatively unknown actor who had caught his eye in a small 1960 crime drama, The Day They Robbed the Bank of England. And that happened to be a young cat named Peter O'Toole. Spiegel was rather unimpressed with the young actor, but he went along with Lean's enthusiasm and let him come on board. O'Toole looked back on the role as one of the greatest adventures of his life, noting the responsibility that he felt in trying to portray this very complex historical figure, while noting just the hardships you had to deal with when you're trying to embody a real person and doing it all while you're sitting on the back of a flea-covered camel in a 127-degree heat of the desert. Spiegel, for his part, would go on and put together a murderer's row of talent when it came to embodying the supporting cast. Horst Buckles would be out for the role of Sharif Ali, that character an amalgam of multiple Arab military leaders who had helped serve with the real Lawrence. You see, other commitments had just gotten in the way. They had tapped French actor Alain Dillon for the role itself, but he turned them down as well. Honestly, he didn't want to wear contact lenses for the role. Now, to be fair, let's take the blatant whitewashing of ethnicity off the table. I can actually sympathize with this. This is the early 1960s. You're going to the desert. Do you want to be putting in hard glass lenses on your eyes in 130 degree heat? I can absolutely understand why he would say no to that. Ultimately, it would be Egyptian actor Omar Sharif, who was already cast in the film in a smaller role. He would be offered the chance to move up to play the starring role of Ali. And from that, he would gain even more international stardom, and he would go on to sign a seven-year contract to keep making films for Columbia after this picture wrapped. In short, this was a fantastic deal for Sharif. For the role of Prince Faisal, the great Laurence Olivier was initially cast to play the Arab leader but he ended up dropping out of that role, and then, as a head-scratcher, it was offered up to Alec Guinness. Now, Guinness himself had worked on four different features with Lean as the director, and honestly, he was hesitant to go and do another film with him. Their onset screaming matches while filming Bridge Over the River Kwai were epic in their own right. His taking of this part was also rather ironic because Prince Faisal was himself slightly younger than Lawrence in real life, whom Guinness was considered too old to play to start with. 
So in this capacity, the character of Faisal that we see on the big screen is both the prince and an amalgam of his older brothers who all served their father, Sharif Hussein, during the Arab Revolt. Which, honestly, for storytelling purposes, it is a practical way of making characters easier to track. But again, this is sort of a bit of, really, too old, but now this? Huh. Interesting. Anthony Quinn, who himself was just coming off of success while filming The Guns of the Navarone, was cast as Ara Abu Tayy, the Bedouin leader who was won over by Lawrence to help him fight the Ottomans. Quinn's inclusion checked the box for having a, quote, American star be in this movie, and it was supposed to help be a box office draw when the film would be released to the States. As Quinn would later recount in an interview for the making of documentary, his first official day on set in Jordan, he was fitted with a prosthetic nose and a full beard, and he came dressed in full Arab regalia, and he rode his horse around the hillside to the onset encampment to greet director David Lean. As he went, the extras and the production crew began to point at him, and they started to chant, Ada Abu Tayy, Ada Abu Tayy. And Lean, who was working with O'Toole on a different scene entirely, had to cut away and kill filming, which angered him. He demanded to know who was disturbing his set with all that racket and who interrupted his shot. His production assistant said, I don't know, but everyone seems to be chanting Ada Abu Tayy. So Lean looks at Quinn as he gets off his horse and remarks, This man is perfect. He is Abu Tayy. Do we have time? Can we fire this Quinn guy and hire this guy? Which caused Quinn to laugh and launch into a very awkward introduction with the director. Now, Jack Hawkins is one of the few initially cast actors to actually stay on this production. But once again, he moved up the call sheet, taking on the role of General Allenby instead of the role he was initially hired for, which was to portray Colonel Brighton. Hawkins actually got on with O'Toole very well during the filming. They did a lot of drinking together. But much like Guinness, he would get into heated arguments with director Lean over how the character was being portrayed. Brighton would end up being portrayed by actor Anthony Quayle. Established film actor Claude Rains, and I mean, come on, you have to call him established. He made The Invisible Man, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, he was in The Wolfman, Casablanca, the guy had chops. He was cast here as the fictional Mr. Dryden, who himself was a stand-in for a myriad of different British government officials and bureaucrats who were part of the Arab Bureau. Men who were very interested in the outcome of the revolt as far as future British colonial expansion was concerned. Last but not least, this picture offers up a very interesting cameo by one Jose Ferrer, who shows up here in the small role as the Turkish Bey, the man who had Lawrence captured, tortured, and then it is alluded to to having been raped. Ferrer didn't actually want to take the role, thinking that his less than five minutes on film would be beneath him, so to counter this, he demanded rather extravagant salary and a new car for his trouble, which the production did pay for. And honestly, for that role, it would be looked back on as some of the finest work in Ferrer's career. A 
Initially budgeted for $11 million, shooting this picture became a brutal test of endurance for almost all parties involved in its production. Heat exhaustion, dehydration, dysentery ran rampant on set. Production, if you recall, started in November of 1960, but shooting didn't start until May of 1961, and that would last through October of 1962, almost two years of filming, spanning America, Egypt, Britain, Spain, Morocco, and Jordan. Lean didn't want Spiegel on set to micromanage or argue with him, so he purposely selected locations that were harsh, remote, and unfriendly to people like Spiegel, <clears throat> i.e. people of Jewish descent, in order to keep him away from the set and from trying to, at least as Lean felt, compromise the work that they were doing out in the desert. Spiegel would send the director telegraphs during the filming to tell him how upset he was over the dailies, which Lean would simply ignore, which again is somewhat ironic. So what you're telling me is, to film Lawrence of Arabia, you literally adopted the same methods that Lawrence himself used to pretend he didn't get his orders? Nice. O'Toole hated shooting in the extreme heat, but he soldiered on. He came a month early to learn how to ride a camel, and he ended up bleeding through his jeans from being so saddle sore. Eventually, he conquered the task by placing foam rubber pads over the leather saddle. Now, this act initially caused some derision amongst the Bedouin extras on the set until they tried it which then started the locals to emulate O'Toole, decking out their own rides with said foam rubber, and earning him the onset name amongst the Arab speakers, Ab al Isfanja, Father of the Sponge. Every actor experienced discomfort and odd occurrences on this set. Omar Sharif would describe removing his black robes at the end of each day of shooting to find that the interiors that were all touching his skin had turned completely white. They were encrusted with all of the salt that his body had lost through sweating. The actors all drank very, very hard on set. O'Toole himself was injured multiple times, sometimes due to his aforementioned drinking and being drunk in the saddle when they were filming. He and Sharif on several occasions tied themselves to the saddles to keep themselves safe and on their mounts. That said, during the filming of the assault on Aqaba, O'Toole fell off his camel and, luckily for him, was saved by the very animal itself when it stood over him and sheltered his body from all of the extras riding horses around him, keeping him from being trampled to death. Sharif and O'Toole ended up blowing take after take during the night scenes that they filmed in Faisal's tent. Now, to shoot scenes where someone was quoting the Quran, it had to be done exactly to not upset followers of Islam. So it was hard for the actors because it was very, very formal language which caused stilted dialogue. And during one of these very long takes, both O'Toole and Sharif ended up being struck with a fit of laughing that just would not dissipate. And this, after so many takes, caused Alec Guinness to yell at the two of them to start to take their jobs seriously and cut it out. Until the next few takes, 
when Guinness himself was struck with the same fits of laughter, and that caused a chain reaction of guffaws, which then caused all of the actors and then director David Lean to fall out of his chair laughing himself, which essentially called it quits for the evening. The budget on the film would end up ballooning over time, first to $13 million, and then would finally settle on the end figure of $15 million take after take would have to be made to use the view of a virgin desert, because you couldn't have actors on their camels and horses traipsing across footprints that they had just made in the sand on a blown take before, and thus that needed to be redone every time, so you either had to move the camera to a completely new location, or you had to go out and sweep the desert to cover all the tracks, which caused multiple headaches for the crew. Still, when shooting wrapped in October of 1962, Columbia breathed a sigh of relief because Spiegel had once again thought he had an epic on his hands, crafted by David Lean. But folks, I'll say, you've been ever so patient with my prattling on. How's about I shut up and we get to that trailer? What do you say? I deem him one of the greatest beings alive in our time. We shall never see his like again. His name will live in history. It will live in the annals of war. It will live in the legends of Arabia. Who is he? It. Thomas! What is your name? My name is for my friends. None of my friends is a murderer. century, controversy has raged around the name of T.E. Lawrence. No man of our time has drawn upon himself so much praise and so much criticism. Lawrence of Arabia, the man torn between two civilizations. Lawrence of Arabia, filmed against a canvas of awesome magnificence. Lieutenant Lawrence, is not your military advisor. But I would like to hear his opinion. Damn it, Lawrence, who do you take her orders from? From Lord Faisal, in Faisal's tent. Peter O'Toole as Lawrence of Arabia. What was he really like, this controversial figure who became a legend in his own lifetime? He was the most extraordinary man I ever knew. He was a very great man. He was a poet, a scholar, and a mighty warrior. He was also the most shameless exhibitionist since Barnum and Bailey. What, in your opinion, do these people hope to gain from this war? They hope to gain their freedom. There's one born every minute. 
They're going to get it, Mr. Bentley. I'm going to give it to them. Lawrence and Louis. Together, they made history. Now, a gathering of international stars unfolds the story. Alec Guinness as Prince Faisal. The English have a great hunger for desolate places. I fear they hunger for Arabia. Anthony Quinn as Auda Abu Taihi. I carry 23 great wounds, all got in battle. 75 men have I killed with my own hands in battle. I scatter, I burn my enemies' tents. I take away their flocks and herds. The Turks pay me a golden treasure, yet I am poor because I am a river to my people. Jack Hawkins as General Allenby. I believe your name will be a household word when you would have to go to the War Museum to find who Allenby was. You're the most extraordinary man I ever met. Leave me alone. Huh? Leave me alone. Jose Ferrer as the Turkish Bay. Your skin is very fair. Also starring Anthony Quayle, Claude Rains, Arthur Kennedy. With Omar Sharif as Ali and Peter O'Toole as Lawrence. in 1935 on the funeral service for the late Colonel T.E. Lawrence. With those in attendance, military, government figures, and members of the press all trying to make sense of a man whose actions in life were deemed enigmatic and strange. We then jump back to 1916, where an insolent young Lawrence, as played by Peter O'Toole, was sweating out his time with the intelligence division at Cairo, working on cartography and bemoaning his lack of excitement. He is tapped by Mr. Dryden, as played by Claude Rains, a man with the Arab Bureau, to help head to Arabia and evaluate Prince Faisal and his forces and their work in combating the Ottomans. Not so much for military purposes, they already have Colonel Brighton out there, as played by Anthony Quayle. He's taking care of that end. No, this is more to assess the political situation. See if the Arabs actually have long-term plans for the region, keeping, of course, British colonial interests in mind. General Murray, as played by Donald Wolfett, is not a fan of Lawrence or his awkward mannerisms, and he's annoyed but seemingly simultaneously pleased to see Lawrence go. It's an intrigue, right? And I do not propose to let an overweening, finicking, crass lieutenant thumb his nose at his general officer commanding and get away with it. It doesn't sound as though he'd be any great loss, sir. Now, don't try that, Dryden. There's a principle involved. There is indeed. He's of no use here in Cairo. He might be in Arabia. He knows his stuff, sir. Knows books, you mean? I've already sent out Colonel Brighton, who's a soldier. 
And if Brighton thinks we should send them some small arms, then we will. Now, what more do you want? There would be no question of Lieutenant Lawrence giving military advice, sir. My God, I should hope not. It's just that the Arab Bureau would like its own man on the spot, sir, to, uh... To what? To make our own appraisal of the situation. I may as well tell you, it's my considered opinion and that of my staff, that any time spent on the Bedouin will be time wasted. They're a nation of sheep stealers. They did attack Medina. And the Turks made mincemeat of them. We don't know that, sir. We know that they didn't take it. A storm in a teacup, right, and a sideshow. If you want my own opinion, this whole theater of operations is a sideshow. The real war is being fought against the Germans, not the Turks. And not here, but on the Western Front, in the trenches. Your Bedouin army, or whatever it calls itself, would be a sideshow of a sideshow. Big things have small beginnings, sir. Does the Arab Bureau want a big thing in Arabia? If they rise against the Turks, does the Bureau think they're going to sit down quietly under us when this war is over? The Bureau thinks the job of the moment, sir, is to win the war. Don't tell me my duty, Spike. Lawrence, sir. Send him in. Good morning, sir. Salute. If you're insubordinate of me, Lawrence, I shall put you under arrest. It's my manner, sir. Go on. My manner, sir. It looks insubordinate, but it isn't really. Well, I can't make out whether you're bloody bad-mannered or just half-witted. I have the same problem, sir. Shut up. Yes, sir. On his travels to find Faisal's encampment, Lawrence starts to bond at first with his Bedouin guide, Tafis, as played by Zaya Modayan. That is, until Tafis is killed at a well that is owned by Sharif Ali, as played by Omar Sharif. Simply on the principle that he was using the well without Ali's permission. Lawrence is disgusted by the death and actually insults Ali parting from his company to continue on alone in his search for Faisal. Lawrence eventually does connect up with Colonel Brighton, who is pompous and tells Lawrence, when we're sitting and talking to Faisal, keep your mouth shut. Lawrence agrees to all this, and, upon going to Faisal's tent, is surprised to find that Sharif Ali is also there. All parties sit and talk with Faisal, as played by Alec Guinness, sort of trying to figure out what the next move will be. Brighton is pushing for an answer, wanting Faisal and his forces to retreat back with him to Yenbo. Faisal and the others in his employ are more impressed with Lawrence, both with his understanding about their situation and the respect and knowledge he has towards their culture and history. Also, Frankly, for his ability to put forth bluntly his opinions on their struggle, much to the anger of Brighton. I must ask you not to speak like that, sir. British and Arab interests are one and the same. Possibly. Ha! Ha! Upon my word, sir, you're ungrateful. Fall back on Yenbo and we will give you equipment, give you arms, advice, training, everything. Guns? A modern rifle for every man. No, guns. Artillery. Guns like the Turkish guns at Medina. Yes. Give us guns and keep the training. Your men need training far more than guns, sir. <laughs> the English will teach the Bedou to fight? We will teach them, Sheriff Ali, to fight a modern mechanized army. In the... 
Yes, Lieutenant. What do you think about Yembo? I think it is far from Damascus. We'll have you in Damascus, I never fear. Have you been in Damascus, Mr. Lawrence? Yes, my lord. It is beautiful, is it not? Very. That will do, Lawrence. Dreaming won't get you to Damascus, sir, but discipline will. Look, sir, Great Britain is a small country, much smaller than yours. Small population compared with some. It's small, but it's great. And why? Because it has guns. Because it has discipline. Because it has a navy. Because of this, the English go where they please and strike where they please, and this makes them great. Right. Yes. Mr. Lawrence, that will do. Lieutenant Lawrence, sir, is not your military advisor. But I would like to hear his opinion. Damn it, Lawrence, who do you take her orders from? From Lord Faisal, in Faisal's tent. Old fool! Why turn from him to him, their master and man? My lord, I think, I think your book is right. The desert is an ocean in which no oar is dipped. And on this ocean the Bedou go where they please and strike where they please. This is the way the Bedou has always fought. You're famed throughout the world for fighting in this way, and this is the way you should fight now. Oh, I don't know. I'm sorry, sir, but you're wrong. Fall back on Yenbo, sir. And the Arab Rising becomes one poor unit in the British Army. What is this to you? Lawrence, do you know you're a traitor? No, no, Colonel. He is a young man, and young men are passionate. But they must say their say. But wiser people must decide. I know you are right. Faisal agrees to heed Brighton's advice. But he quietly also gives Lawrence 50 men to be led by Sharif Ali. They're going to use them to launch a surprise attack on the port city of Aqaba, a plan that Ali himself deems as idiotic, noting that they have to cross the Nefud Desert, that's a stretch known as Al-Hul, which the Bedouins even themselves avoid. They call it God's Anvil. Lawrence himself is undeterred, insisting to Ali that it can be done, and it will be done by him. A two-day hell ride ensues, until they finally get to have a respite at an oasis. But in the night, Lawrence discovers that one of the men, Gassim, as played by I.S. Johar, had fallen off of his camel and was left for dead out in the sands. Determined to retrieve him and leave no man behind, against Ali's protest, Lawrence rides out into the desert alone to find him and triumphantly returns with the half-dead man, earning the respect of Ali and all his men. While Lawrence finally sleeps, the Arabs replace his ruined uniform with clean white robes for him to wear, and he travels on with them, a gesture that Lawrence delights in. The group ends up meeting with the Hawatat tribe, who is under the leadership of Oda Abu Tayyi, as played by Anthony Quinn, and he strikes a bargain with them. He will agree to join in their assault against the Turkish forces, in exchange for, of course, access to Ottoman loot. This is not an ideal coalition for Ali, because he views the Hawatat as opportunists who will work just for the highest bidder. 
That night, the Alliance is tested and imperiled as one of Ali's men kills Ahawatat over a standing blood feud. It's Lawrence, the impartial third-party member, who's called upon by both Ali and Ada to execute the man responsible for the murder to maintain the peace between the two factions. Lawrence is horrified that the man he has to kill is Gassim, but he carries forth with his task, executing the man he saved with his service revolver. The next day, the Arab forces assault and take the city of Aqaba, capturing the guns and taking over the Turkish garrison there. Lawrence leaves Ada and Ali to maintain control, choosing to take his two young adopted assistants, Daoud, as played by John Dimmick, and Faraj, as played by Michael Ray, with him to journey across the Sinai Desert to report back to British headquarters in Cairo, which would then allow the British to reinforce the Arabs by sea. The journey is arduous, and in a raging storm, Lawrence and Faraj tearfully lose Daoud to quicksand. Lawrence ends up entering Cairo, upsetting a bunch of the officers he encounters with his native dress and with his insistence that Farage be treated with respect, demanding that the youth be served lemonade with ice, shocking all in attendance with his claims. No, no, you must, you must. No, 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 go, Effendi, go. Get out, you must get out, get out. We want... Two large glasses of lemonade. This is a path for British officers. That's all right. We are not particular. Lawrence! Are you off your head? No. Oddly enough, I'm not. Now, look here, Lawrence. Just clear out of here, will you? Come on, Lawrence. Clear Get that boy out of here. Poco! We'll have this one out anyway. Clear off! Clear off, sir. Get that walk out of here. Yes, clear off. Come on, get the little walk out. What's going on? It's Lawrence, sir. Lemonade with ice. Well, explain yourself. We've taken Aqaba. Taken Aqaba? Who has? We have. Our side in this war has. The Wogs have. We have. He likes your lemonade. You mean the Turks have gone? No, they're still there, but they've no boots. Prisoners, sir. We took them prisoners, the entire garrison. No, that's not true. We killed some. Too many, really. I'll manage it better next time. It's been a lot of killing, one way or another. Cross my heart and hope to die, it's all perfectly true. It isn't possible. Yes, it is. I did it. You'd better talk to Allenby. General Allenby? Yes, he's in command now. Murray's gone. Well, that's a step in the right direction. First, I want a room with a bed, with sheets. Yes, yes, of course. It's for him. Right. You want a bed yourself, don't you? See Allenby first, though. Will he see me? I think so. Do that, then. General Allenby, as played by Jack Hawkins, has Lawrence promoted to being a major, and he gives him arms and supplies, while assuring Lawrence that he is indeed correct. Britain doesn't have any interest 
post-war in control of Arabia, and agrees to help them set up a free state. Lawrence commences with a new operation in the desert, ambushing Turkish troops, blowing up their rail lines, and racking up successes, all while being profiled by an American journalist, Jackson Bentley, as played by Arthur Kennedy who views Lawrence as both an inspiring figure, but also accurately sees him as a bit of a braggart, a man who is starting to believe his own mythos, noting that even when he's wounded, Lawrence doesn't seem to consider that he could possibly have a bad outcome in this conflict. And so, it happens. A series of setbacks begins to occur. During the setup for an ambush of a Turkish train, a detonator that Faraj is carrying on his person goes off, leaving the youth horribly injured. Unable to take him with and not wanting him to be left behind to be tortured at the hands of the Turks, Lawrence is forced to mercy kill his devoted teen follower, an act that haunts him. Still thinking that he himself, though, can't be stopped, Lawrence and a small group of men begin to scout the Ottoman-held city of Dira trying to get intel on the weapons depot there. But Lawrence, due to his height, his blue eyes, and his overall fairness, is arrested and questioned, being brought to the local Turkish Bay, as played by Jose Ferrer. And after rejecting his groping, Lawrence ends up being held down and is severely beaten, all while the governor lustily watches. Lawrence is later released and stumbles back to camp, where he is for a time broken, but cared for by his friend Sharif Ali. Now starting to doubt his abilities, Lawrence attempts to get Allenby to get somebody else to lead for a new push that the British are making towards Damascus. But he's eventually built back up by his allies and convinced that he can do it. Loaded up with arms and money, Lawrence creates a massive fighting force of various Arab groups, something that Ali thinks is rather distasteful. These men are fighting for money, not the creation of an Arab state under Faisal, but Lawrence sees them as a means to an end. On their way to Damascus, they do encounter a raised town of Tafas, and they catch up to a retreating column of Ottoman troops, ones who clearly just massacred the town they went through. Sharif Ali urges Lawrence to go around, trying to get him to focus on the bigger picture, taking Damascus. But when a man from Tafas is enraged, seeing his town, his villagers, his family, all dead, when he charges the Turkish lines and is killed, Lawrence, flooded with bloodlust, finally snaps. Oh, prisoners. Damascus oil. Orans, not this. Go round. Damascus, Orans. Damascus. No prisoners. Orans. This was Talal's village.
His white gowns now stained red with the blood of his enemies. Lawrence and the Arab forces roll into Damascus to take the city ahead of the forces of the British and the French. Lawrence attempts to help the various Arab leaders in setting up a provisional government to take charge of running the city. But between the internal feuding and infighting, the British keep trying to convince the ad hoc council to turn the city over to them. But when the Arabs refuse, much to Lawrence's frustration and anger, the British pull their support, shutting down utilities and health services and leaving it up to the local populace, which makes it near impossible for the squabbling council to effectively run the city. As the Arab unity flags, they eventually all pull out of the city, leaving it abandoned and leaving Lawrence to wander Damascus shell-shocked and saddened that he could not inspire them to take control of their destiny. As British troops finally enter into Damascus, an army doctor, outraged at the state of affairs of the patients, ends up insulting Lawrence with an ethnic slur and knocking him aside, causing the officer to burst into peals of saddening laughter, just at the sheer lunacy of the situation. The army, tired with him interfering, and Prince Faisal, seemingly done with Lawrence as well, both bid him goodbye. Lawrence has learned that he's being promoted to the rank of colonel, and thus he will be summarily sent home to England for all of his good work. On his way out, the same doctor who insulted and knocked him down the day before, now not recognizing him, garbed back in his traditional military uniform, is thrilled to meet the hero Lawrence and shakes his hand, before a saddened Lawrence is packed into a car and sent home, unsure of his future. Credits. Roll. So where do we begin? Well, once again, let's talk about what works here, starting first and foremost with Peter O'Toole. Now, this, this here is Peter O'Toole at the height of his powers, before rampant alcoholism and stomach cancer gave us, well, let's face it, us is guys my age who are me, gave us the vision of Peter O'Toole that we grew up with, that drawn, tired-looking, hooded-eyed man that we saw in things like Caligula and My Favorite Year, that version of Peter O'Toole, which, by the way, was still genius, but not a man to be trifled with in any way, but still past his prime. He lost some of that shininess, some of that vibrancy. No, here, it's very safe to say, and I'll use a very technical term, this is Peter O'Toole at his zenith, his most fuckable self, the version of him that we'd ever see grace stage and screen, commanding respect, offering some of the best work he would do in his entire life, and all done with those blue eyes shining and that calm demeanor carrying the day. Boastful Lawrence is fun. Masochistic Lawrence is a hoot, but for my money, O'Toole is chewing the scenery and really earning that paycheck when he's playing Lawrence at the height of his own self-loathing, all full of doubt. 
One of the most powerful scenes of this movie that just sticks with me is when Lawrence is raging at Allenby, trying to explain that he can't do this anymore, all while trying to dodge why he's not up for the job. He won't give them reason. Which we know from Lawrence's own history, it's a dodge. He wants to hide the torture and obviously the implied rape that he experienced at the hands of the Ottomans. The subtleness of the scene is so brilliant because you get to see the looks of genuine horror and concern that slowly cross both Dryden's and Allenby's eyes as Lawrence, unaware that he's torn the bandages underneath his clothing, begins to bleed through his uniform in front of the men that he's yelling at, which causes Dryden to force him to turn around, allowing the other officers in the room to now see just how injured Lawrence is which allows this outburst to be forgiven. It's doing so much here which is so little. No words are being said from the two men that are in the room while O'Toole is talking, and yet you see this transpire between Hawkins and Reigns, their utter uncomfortableness with seeing a fellow human being in distress, and their simultaneous sympathy. It's just gold. truth is I'm an ordinary man. You might have told me that, Dryden. And I want an ordinary job, sir. That's my reason for resigning. It's personal. Personal? Yes, sir. Personal? You're a serving officer in the field, and as it happens, a damned important one. Personal? Are you mad? No. And if you don't mind, I'd rather not go mad. That's my reason, too. Look, Lawrence, I'm making my big push on Damascus the 16th of next month, and you are part of it. Can you understand that? You're an important part of the big push. I don't want to be part of your big push. What about your Arab friends? What about them? I have no Arab friends. I don't want Arab friends. What in hell do you want, Lawrence? I told you, I just want my ration of common humanity. Lawrence? Yes? Nothing. Uh, sorry I interrupted, sir. Well, that's quite all right. Thank you, Mr. Dryden. Thank you, sir. But why don't we... There's blood on your back. Do you want a doctor? No. Tell me what happened. For his part, O'Toole gets to chew the scenery multiple times in multiple ways in this movie. And that's the beauty of Lawrence as a character. He goes through all these different changes. To his fellow officers, he's this overlearned eccentric weirdo. This guy who wants to be cool but can't seem to get it together. And he's sort of a klutz, and that's what's awesome. But then he gets his first taste of battle, and he kills. And Lawrence realizes he likes it, and he likes getting his hands dirty. And then we get to see that bloodlust kind of carry him through several times over the course of the revolt, where he delights in taking on his enemies. And it's supposed to be a little more than just poignant that Lawrence first marvels at his image when he's first gifted that full set of Arab regalia. Plus, he just gets to admire his reflection with that decorative knife. And then later, post 
massacre at Tophus, where he's just all exhausted. His revolver is totally spent. He's covered head to toe in blood. The knife is bloody in his hand. And he goes to lean against an overturned wagon wheel. And he yet again catches his own reflection in that bloody blade. And he's horrified to see what he's become. Likewise, Omar Sharif and Anthony Quinn, they are amazing here as well in their supporting roles. And yeah, Quinn gets to choose scenery and is more of the comic relief character. It's really Omar Sharif who is granted to have that full character arc. He's not a savage, he never was, but when we get introduced to him, he is a very proud, uncompromising man who is really, really unwilling to change the way he sees the world. But as Lawrence comes into his life, he's suddenly thrust into a larger conflict than he himself had envisioned. Outside geopolitical forces are making him see a need in getting sort of Lawrence's opinion on things. And as Lawrence argues for a united Arab state, this causes Sharif Ali to think bigger about just not being a leader for his own unique group, but seeing him as understanding he's part of something larger than himself. And that allows him to evolve as the film rolls on in very interesting ways. And it also shows this really interesting dynamic that the character gets to have with Lawrence. What about you, Ali? I should stay here and learn politics. That's a very low occupation. I had no thought of it when I met you. You tried very hard to give us Damascus. It's what I came for. And then... It would be something. Yes. Much. He is your friend. Your hand away. You love him. No, I fear him. And why do you weep? I fear him, who love him. Or must he fear himself, who hates himself? Take your hand away! Hoitat! Oh. So you are not yet entirely politician? Not yet. Well, these are new tricks, and I am an old dog. And Allah be thanked. I'll tell thee what, though. Being an Arab will be thornier than you suppose, Harif. I would be negligent if I didn't give my due respect to Alec Guinness here, himself taking on a role that, as the years go by, becomes honestly harder and harder to explain to younger viewers who take this film in with new eyes. You need to understand, casting Omar Sharif, that was deemed to be very out of sync and thus a very progressive step. You know, having an Egyptian actor play an Arab character? Hell, Anthony Quinn is 
Mexican-American, and his swarthiness was considered to be an asset here. So yeah, to current times, having this classically trained British actor don makeup and do a turn in what we would now consider to be the sin of engaging in brownface, that's a real tough sell to more modern audiences. To his credit though, Guinness, with all of his sincerity and charm, really did try to embody his portrayal of Faisal as a man who is trying to acknowledge and honor the culture of his own people, while still attempting to navigate the geopolitical forces of the 20th century, and of war landing on his doorstep. He plays Faisal as this man with education, dignity, grace, in a role that is not meant to at all be mocking or disrespectful. Guinness himself loved Omar Sharif's own accent when he spoke English, and so he modeled his portrayal of Faisal and the character's talking style on his own co-worker, which makes it one of the more interesting roles that Guinness had actually done at this time. Now again, I know, in these modern times, this is not something that you should actually be clamoring for, but it's not a portrayal that was done with any intent to insult, nor was it done in a tone-deaf fashion. See, like, Mickey Rooney doing horrible yellow face in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Rather, it was done with solid intentions to play the role to the best of the actor's ability. So. We don't have to admire the steps taken in the context, though, of the big picture. For the time, we can agree that Guinness himself is really magnificent here and really plays a steadfast leader with his own agenda and ideas. Something else to ponder. This is a very, very male-centric film. Seriously, with the exception of being seen in a few places in the background of Faisal's camp, and then later as nurses in the Damascus hospital, there are virtually no women in this film, and none in any speaking roles. Which, honestly, is really odd for a movie of this side with this many people involved in this scope. And yet, here we are. So I get it. I can hear you now. Chris, we get it, you love it, but how was the movie received? Well, does the phrase massive success mean anything to you? Variety called it an eye-catching motion picture that is designed to bring people back to the cinema, and it certainly deserves to. New York Times film critic Bosley Crowther, who did himself take exception to the historical inaccuracies of Lawrence's character, was still unable to help himself, noting that the film was vast and awe-inspiring, beautiful with its ever-changing hues. Audiences lined up for it, eating it up with a spoon. Indeed, Lawrence of Arabia grossed over $70 million at the box office. It would go on to win five of seven Golden Globe nominations, as well as two of the five Oscar nominations it received, securing Best Picture for Spiegel and Best Director for David Lean. It has been roundly considered to be one of the greatest films ever made in motion picture history, and has been lauded by directors like Scorsese, Spielberg, Kubrick, Scott, De Palma, and George Lucas as being inspiring. Steven Spielberg, for his part, considers this to be his favorite movie. 
Now, I'll tell you, there were people who didn't care for it. The resurgence of Lawrence in the public eye made many folks dig into his own history, and that's like we discussed last week with historians such as the case of Musa, we saw an educational backlash. Which should happen. That's a good thing. But there was also pushback from Lawrence's own family. You see, when all was said and done, the real Lawrence's brother, Professor Arnold Lawrence, was rather horrified with the end results of what happened when he sold the rights to his brother's book. And he did not enjoy how Peter O'Toole portrayed his brother, and worried about how the public would think of his family's legacy. Thus, he made it a personal goal to go and denounce the film, giving traveling lectures on who the real Lawrence was in an attempt to combat what he felt was misinformation, not at all enjoying the grandstanding display that O'Toole gave with his performance. I believe your name will be a household word when you would have to go to the War Museum to find who Allenby was. You're the most extraordinary man I ever met. Leave me alone. What? Leave me alone. Well, that's a feeble thing to say. I know. I'm not ordinary. That's not what I'm saying. All right. I'm extraordinary. What of it? Not many people have a destiny, Lawrence. It's a terrible thing for a man to funk it if he has. Are you speaking from experience? No. You're guessing, man. Suppose you're wrong. Why suppose that? We both know I'm right. Yes. After all... I said yes. The 16th. Can you do it? I'll give you a lot of money. Artillery. I can't. They won't be coming for money, not the best of them. They'll be coming for Damascus. Which I'm going to give them. That's all I want. All you want is someone holding down the Turkish right. But I'm going to give them Damascus. We'll get there before you do. And when we've got it, we'll keep it. You can tell the politicians to burn their bit of paper now. Fair enough. Fair. What's fair got to do with it? It's going to happen. I shall want quite a lot of money. All there is? Not that much. Best of them won't come for money. They'll come for me. As a film, Lawrence of Arabia continues to be a cultural staple, inspiring many filmmakers and projects in its wake and creating new fans as time has rolled on. Look, for myself, Lawrence of Arabia remains a film that I feel I can at least watch just about any time, provided that one has the temperament to sit down and commit themselves to the standard runtime of being almost four hours and take in all of that majesty and sweeping storytelling. Now, with my luck, this is going to be one of those films that somebody awkwardly tries to remake to the detriment of all that are involved, due mostly to the size, scope, and honestly the rather precarious relationship we now have with the past history, both in dealing with colonial interference before and after the First World War, and just with 
how do we make a character now like Lawrence be the good guy, even if he had nothing but best intentions? A made-for-TV film, A Dangerous Man, Lawrence After Arabia, that was made in 1990. And while it does have a young Ray Fiennes, it's not up to par even a little when it comes to addressing something with this kind of level of scope. All that is just to say, don't waste your time. This truly is, again, in my humble opinion, a magnificent film, and it's made to be seen as an epic experience of movie-going trying to convey a time, a place, and a feeling. It's not itself to be considered factually accurate by any stretch. Rather, it's just trying to get you to focus on telling a very interesting and entertaining story. And if that's something that you're looking for in a film, this is going to have it for you in spades. The version of Lawrence of Arabia screened here at the LSCE was the 2001 Columbia Limited Edition DVD double disc set that is still available to this day. If you were to go on to Amazon.com for $15.69, you would get yourself a superb cut of the 1989 Restored film, plus a making of documentary, DVD ROM full of photographs, a behind the scenes scrapbook, interactive maps, conversations with Steven Spielberg, four original making of featurettes, including Mon, Jordan, Camels Are Cast, In Search of Lawrence, Romance of Arabia, and Wind, Sand, and Star, the making of a classic, newsreel footage from the film's New York premiere, advertising supplementals, theatrical trailers, and talent files, which is plenty of bang for your buck if you ask me. What? That's not modern enough for you? <laughs> Well, you can get all the same good stuff and more on the Blu-ray release of the film for just $16.67, which I would again say is a marvelous boon for movie fans. Now remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you purchase your films from. We just think still, in this day and age, it's important to continue to support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to these fantastic films will keep releasing the content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that exactly what you're looking for? More of what you know and love? Besides, this is a truly beautiful film, both in its scope, acting, and storytelling, so you would be doing yourself a disservice not to see it. So all that said, what are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of Lawrence of Arabia today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it right here and give you a shout out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. Proud to say that we've been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, 
play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to do that to any of the lists that we're a part of to give us a boost in the old rankings. You see, the more reviews we get and the increased likes on places like Apple and like Spotify, that affects those marvelous algorithms and that makes us more searchable. And then we can share more of these fine films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. Now, we're coming up on our end of the year review. That's going to be next week and that's going to be the last episode for the calendar year of 2021. So, last call. We are looking to you listeners. We have a couple that came in, but I would always love more. Do you have any questions for us? Any comments? Any movies you want us to cover? Things that you thought I got wrong? Things you thought I got right? Questions, comments, concerns, or complaints? We want to hear from you. Please send us by way of email or an audio clip. Send that to us at LindenStreetCinemaExperience at gmail.com. If you love social media, hey, we use it here. Follow us on Twitter at LSCEP, or you can find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar, feel free. Send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, folks, we're going into Christmas. I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful time visiting with your families, loved ones, friends. Please be sure, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy, eat lots of great food, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody, and happy holidays. say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.